Welcome to Sound Prince Audio Magazine, a production of the Kentucky Council of the Blind. Sound Prince is underwritten by the American Printing House for the Blind and the Louisville Downtown Lions Club. I'm Carla Rushevel. I'm your host for this week's magazine. Welcome to Sound Prince for the week of August 5, 2018. First, for some announcements. ACB families will have two conference calls in August. The first is August 12. We'll be meeting to make plans for teleconferences and choose support group topics for the next several months. August 26 will be our parent support group meeting. Both calls begin at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, 6 p.m. Pacific, and 3 p.m. Hawaiian Time and are on the conference line at 712-432-3900, enter code 796096. Everyone is welcome to attend both calls. The Greater Louisville Council of the Blind invites everyone in the Louisville area to our roundabouts each Friday in August. Each roundabout includes tech tips, especially for the iPhone and the Orbit Reader, discussion time, dinner, and games. Special activities for this coming Friday, August 10, include dog massage techniques, sponsored by the Guide Dog Users of Kentuckyana at 445, a bargain table right after dinner, and bingo from 730 to 930. Special activities for August 24 include page turners sharing good books, a Tri-State Library users meeting at 5.30, and the Kentucky Council of the Blind Next Generation activities for members under 40 after dinner. Remember that dinner is $6 per person. Call 502-895-4598 to sign up for Roundabout. KCB Next Generation invites everyone to a dine-out on August 25 from 4 to 7 p.m. Call Amanda Selm at 502-750-1774 for more information and to sign up. The Kentucky Council of Citizens with Low Vision Chapter invites everyone, regardless of where you live, to its monthly conference call meeting and support group on Tuesday, August 7, 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Dial 605-475-6006 and enter code 294444. KCCLV's Louisville Support Groups for People with Low Vision meets from 1.30 to 3.30 p.m. on the second and fourth Thursdays of each month. That's August 9 and August 23 this month. At United Crescent Hill Ministries, call 502-895-4598 for more information and to sign up. Our Owensboro chapter, the Support Alliance of the Visually Impaired, will meet on Tuesday, August 14, from 1 to 3 p.m. Central Time at the Wing Avenue Baptist Church in Owensboro. Call Rick Bogus at 270-684-4418 for more information. Radio has sure changed over the years, going from AM to FM to the Internet. The Saturday morning program at our 2018 Kentucky School for the Blind Alumni Reunion spotlighted several alumni and current students who have been or who are currently involved in radio. The program was led by Mike Hudson, curator of the American Printing House for the Blind Museum, and the panel of program participants included 1954 KSB graduate Raymond Randalls, former Talking Book Studio Director at the American Printing House for the Blind. Here, Raymond's radio experiences on page two. B.T. Kimbrough, former editor of Dialogue Magazine, who attended the Kentucky School for the Blind through his junior year and graduated in 1960 from Shawnee High School in Louisville. Hear his stories and experiences on page three. 
Michael McCarty, 1991 KSB graduate on page 4, and Alex Stein, a senior at KSB this coming year, and Mason Tilly, a junior at Trimble County High School, who attends some short courses at KSB on page 5. We hope you enjoy our radio journey. Page 2. I'm Adam Rushville. If you know me, then you also know that I'm interested in history. If someone tells me that history is boring, I think this morning will prove that statement to be wrong because I think we're going to have a lot of fun this morning. Mike Hudson and Michael McCarty and I met about uh, a little over a month ago and talked about the possibility of talking about uh, KSB and people and students connected with the school that have gone into radio. And so I've sort of begged Mike Hudson to moderate a panel here this weekend and I think he saw that I was sincere because he graciously agreed to do that. Mike Hudson uh, is the director at the American Printing House for the Blind in their museum. He does a great job with putting on bards and storyteller programs and so Mike uh, I'm gonna ask you if you can take over and introduce our panel and tell us a little bit about the KSB electric radio. Thank you very much Adam. Uh, I want to thank everybody for letting me be here today. We're, we're kind of uh, selling this uh, today as, as one of the museum uh, bards and storytellers programs. And for those of you who have been to one of our bards and storytellers programs, you know that for the last, gosh, uh, since 2006, we have been celebrating kind of traditions inside the blind community of uh, entertainers and singers and storytellers and uh, songwriters and musicians. Um, and so today we have a, a, a panel of folks who have been entertaining people around the United States, really, in some cases, for quite a while, right up to the present day. And so what we're going to do is we're going to do a little bit of an interview with each of our panelists. And we have here three alumni, uh, Raymond Randalls and B.T. Kimbrough and Michael McCarty. And then we have a couple of current uh, KSB students uh, working in radio, Mason Tilly and Alex Stein. And uh, we're going to have a little bit of an interview with each one. Um, and then uh, at the end, we're going to give uh, you guys uh, out in the audience an opportunity to ask some questions as well. So um, I want to welcome everybody on our panel. We're going to start out with you, Raymond. Okay, so Raymond, uh, did you have a radio voice? I'm not sure. Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, some, some uh, you know, radio guys, when you talk to them in public, you know, they kind of have just an ordinary kind of voice, just like anybody you might meet. But then when they get on the radio, uh, welcome to WA. Yeah. yeah. So did you, did you do that? No, I tried to be natural. Okay. Uh, I didn't try to use a big boy voice. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. <laughs> so how how did you, what was your first experience being on the radio live? Well, my first experience was that back in the early 1960s, I contacted two or three radio stations trying to get somebody interested in letting me present a program of old phonograph records, old recordings. Uh, I checked with WINN and I don't remember who else at WHAS. Um, what WHAS did was they gave me a, a shot 
on um, Milton Metz's program uh, back in the early 1960s. I think it was called Juniper 52385 at the time. It went through two or three name changes over the years. Um, and what I did was I took a stack of 78s in and uh, Milton interviewed me and we talked a little bit about some of the recordings, talked a little bit about uh, how I'd built my collection. And that was my first shot. It was an hour and a half program. So that's how I got my first contact. So how did that, that first time that, you know, they, how, you know, how did they let you know that you were, you, that it was live, that you were, you know, on, on the air? How did, what? How did they let you know that you were on the air? Well, um, when, when the recording stopped, then we were on live. Uh, Milton told me that um, we would be live except when the recordings were being played. And so he would he would just touch you, or or you just knew that you were you were live. Right, I knew I was live. When, okay. When Milton started talking, I knew we were on. So that first moment when you were live, what was going through your head? Because I mean, Milton Metz, he's a big star, right? I mean, right. For 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 the day, Mil I mean, it would be hard to find a bigger star than than Milton Metz. Uh, he started at HAS, I think, in 1945. And I don't remember when he finally retired. It was in the late 80s. And, of course, he read for APH at two different periods in his history. Yeah, so there you are. You're on live with Milton Metz. What's, what's I mean, is there pee running down your leg or? <laughs> <laughs> no. Were you nervous? Were you scared? I was a little bit nervous at first, but then I kind of settled down. You want, went on to actually have a regular show. No. No. But you did a bunch of different broadcasts. I know you did at least 300. That's a later story. Okay. And I'll give you that one. I was dating uh, one of the teachers at AP, uh, at Kentucky School for the Blind in the early 1970s. Her name was Jean Flowers. Uh, probably some of you remember her. In January 1976, the library, uh, the main branch of the library, had um, a film series. And they were doing True Grit one night. And Jean and I decided to go down and see it. it. You know, it was at 7 o'clock at night. So we got down there, and we went into, this, into the studio where they were going to show the film. We were the only two people there. And I thought, you know, are they going to run this movie for just the two of us? Then another person came in. This lady came in, and Jean turned around, and she said, well, there's Rena. And I said, Rena? And I turned around, and, it, and Jean, she came over, and she spoke to Jean, called her by name. And so they talked for a couple of minutes. And I found out that it was Rena Stommer 
who was the uh, the head of the two library stations at the time. And so after the uh, after the movie was over, uh, Jean was introduced me to her, and I told her that I was a big fan of hers, um, and that she invited me to tour the studio, uh, tour the station. So I went down about a week later, and I had this hour-long tour, I guess. She took me around, showed me everything. And then I says to her, I said, you know what I'd always wanted to do was a program of old phonograph records. Uh, tell a little bit about the history of the music and history of the phonograph. She said, could you do a demo tape? And I said, well, yeah, I can try. So, so Raymond, let me just interrupt you real quick. So you, it's total happenstance right. that, you, that you meet this lady. Right. There you are, you're in the studio, and the first thing that comes to mind is, I'm going to shill this idea. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So, so anyway, she liked the demo tape, put me on the air, um, started in 76, and I did 302 programs in the series. So I say that um, it was a KSB connection all the way. Uh, Gene Flowers introduced me to Rena Stommer, uh, both of whom uh, worked at Kentucky School for the Blind. Rena, Rena had been there um, earlier before she went to WFPL. So I say that it was pure coincidence, but I have to say that KSB Connections got me on the radio. So, so were those those shows were taped they, before they were broadcast? Is that right? That's correct. And um, uh, w when you went down to the studio to record the show, it was recorded down at the at WFPL. That's right. And um, did you have to take your own phonograph? Because you were playing, you were playing seventy eights. Am I right? Mostly 78s, yeah. And so for people that don't know, 78 uh, records were the first phonograph records where they played at a high speed. They were, they were pretty fragile, right? You could, right. And, and so uh, did you ever have an instance where uh, your equipment broke down on you? No. No. For one of the first programs... I took an Edison cylinder phonograph. I carried it down there, and uh, Joe Bourne was my producer. Some of you may remember Joe. He had a jazz program as well. Um, we rigged up the microphone in front of the uh, Edison cylinder machine, and Joe said afterwards, he said, why don't you try recording them at home said, I think I can get as good a quality from your home recordings as we get down here, and you won't have to carry that big machine around. So anyway, that's what I did. Because they wouldn't have had any of the equipment to play these kind of what we would think of today as legacy recording formats. Well, they could play 78s. Okay, okay. And they also... Um, one of the engineers down there read an article in High Fidelity magazine telling how to rig a 
standard pickup to play the vertical cut Edison diamond discs. So I had been using diamond discs, which played a vertical cut instead of a lateral cut, um, but I'd been taping them at home. So after that, I could take those Edison diamond discs in and they could play them on their equipment. Right, right. So there's a lot of actual uh, technical work involved in getting the best sound out of those records. Absolutely. So um, what, do you, um, what do you remember um, in, in terms of your radio career as um, you know, kind of the highlight? Well, it was a dream that went back to uh, when I was about 11, 12 years old. Station came on the air. Uh, we had four radio stations in Louisville when I was a kid. Then a fifth one opened up in, I think, 1946, WKYW, and they played music format from sunrise to sunset. And on Sunday afternoon, they had a little program called Remember When. It was about 15 minutes, and they played old phonograph records on there. And I enjoyed listening to it because we had a whole stack, a whole bunch of Edison cylinder records that I grew up on. I always, from that time when I was 12, 13 years old, I always thought it wouldn't, wouldn't it be fun to have a radio program of my own and play records, talk about the music and all. And then, um, Two other things. For my 300th program, I decided finally to give some recognition to my wife because I had married Jean Flowers back in 1977. So in July 84, for my 300th program, I did one called One for Jean. And I told a little bit about her uh, background and told how she was, um, she and Rena were responsible for me having the program in the first place. Yes. And then finally, when Irving Berlin died in 1989 at the age of 101, I went down to WFPL and talked to um, Jerry Weston, who was then the head of the stations, and I asked him if I could do uh, I had stopped my program in 84. This was in 89. I asked him if I could do a memorial program for Irving Berlin. He said, yeah. He said, I'll give you an hour uh, for, our, for a program. So uh, Jim Collings, who was the uh, producer, technician down there, Jim and I put together this hour-long tribute to Irving Berlin that was aired in December 1989. It was the only hour-long program I ever did, and um, I traced Berlin's career, played wide variety of his music. Mm -hmm. That's great. Thank you, Raymond. Let's give Raymond a hand. Page three. 
So our, our next guest, uh, B.T. Kimbrough. B.T., when did you graduate from high school? Graduated from high school in 1960. So I've worked with you a little bit on our Braille Readers Theater thing. I'm, I'm almost positive, B.T., that you had a radio voice. Yes, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you, let's start out with how you got into radio. I want to tell a short follow-up story to what something Raymond touched on first, just a sure. minute. Sure. Um, radio was a source of opportunities for me, and I've always felt like it was really important to give opportunities as well as receive them. I was working for the library stations WFPK and WFPL in 1970 through 72, and they let me have an assistant uh, in those days. We had an electric braille typewriter, and uh, I had an assistant who would type in the opera librettos or the summaries of the opera plots so I could read them on the air. And I lost my assistant, and I understood uh, from somebody that Rena Stormer was looking for work. And this was underemployment for Rena. She had been at the Kentucky School for the Blind, but she was interested in the job. And I hired her as an assistant, and I'm thrilled at what Raymond said, because I know Rena stayed at the library station, and she advanced and I think became a program director down there. And I'm just thrilled that I had a small part in that, because I had a chance to hire an assistant, and I hired the right person. So basically, you're taking claim for all of Raymond's radio career. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, BT. Well, Anyways, uh, uh, yeah, so, right. uh, so, so how did you get into radio yourself? Well, I went to the School of Music. Uh, I always wanted to go to broadcasting school, but they wouldn't, uh, they wouldn't uh, talk to you in the 60s in terms of uh, putting you through broadcasting school. I'm talking about rehab. Because you were blind. Because I were an M. Yeah. Yeah. So I went to music school. I, I loved music and still do. But I made a pledge to myself I would think of some way uh, to get into broadcasting while I was in music school. And taking music history as a sophomore, uh, I, I was told, like the other students, we had to listen to the, one of the library stations to hear our assigned listening. And lo and behold, our music history teacher... Mr. Stallnacker was announcing the selections, and I got a bright idea. I went to Mr. Stallnacker and I said, Professor, I know you're busy. I know you have a lot to do. Uh, as a favor to you, I would it just be willing. It, it would be, um, uh, you know, like taking medicine, but I'd be willing to take that off of your plate. I thought I was being real smart. He knew perfectly well that I was looking for a volunteer opportunity, and out of the goodness of his heart, he allowed me to do that. And that gave me the chance to be around the tape recorders and around the microphone. I did just a terrible job because all the names were foreign, Italian and French and German and Spanish and I don't know what all. And I, you know, I hadn't thought of that. But there were people at the library who helped me go to the dictionaries, and some of them actually knew how some of these performers pronounced their names. So it gave me a chance to learn. No pressure at all. Um, it wasn't a paid job and lasted uh, for four years and later when the corporation for public broadcasting uh, gave them a grant uh, to hire somebody they remembered uh, my work and they hired me in the 70s but i um, also want to tell you the story of how i got in uh, the commercial uh, end and i was in frankfurt um, working uh, full-time as a church musician and i realized uh, that for 
several reasons that was not something I was going to be able to make a career at. And I was still had the bug bitten about radio. And I made some friends at the commercial station, and I was there at all hours of the day and night, and I used to beg them to let me do the newscasts. And just to shut me up, they'd let me try one once in a while. And every now and then, the rock jock and I would put together uh, tapes of satires that we would run on his program. And to make a long story short, the owner of the station, who I found out later was nearly blind himself and who told me several times, a blind person can't be in radio. There's just no way it can happen. They were looking for a news director, and it's, it's hard in small towns to get people to come and stay. Uh, usually something happens and they move on down the road. I was in the right place at the right time. They were looking for a news director. Martin Luther King had just been assassinated. It was a terrible time uh, in this country in news in 1968. And just because they lost their news director and, and they weren't sure how they were going to find another one, they said, well, we'll let you fill in for a few days so we'll find a real news director. And I never let that go. Uh, and I was there until uh, from 1968 to 1970. So did you have to work to develop a radio voice? Well... As I say, I, I started out thinking I knew what a radio voice was, but you can't. You, you're somebody else. You're not really you uh, if you don't use an authentic voice. And pretty soon I ran, I ran out of gas, and I realized I've got to, I got to respond to questions. I have to ask people questions. That's not me talking. Yes. Yeah. So by that time, I think uh, uh, your your breathing changes when you t you have to take a deep breath. Most of the time when you open the mic, because you don't know when you'll have the chance to get another one. Right. And pretty soon a real radio voice kind of developed. I had a piano teacher here at the School of the Line named William Moots. And Bill Moots, uh, I told him in the eighth grade that I wanted to be in radio. And he said to me, and this was the great motivator for me, he said, Well, BT, I'm not sure you have a voice for radio. <laughs> well, I just couldn't let that alone, okay? <laughs> <laughs> so, so what about the technical end of it? As the news director there uh, in Frankfurt, and then later on, you, you worked at other radio stations. Yeah. At, um, uh, what were the challenges of in the, the working in the studio with the equipment? Well, we didn't we didn't have anything now, like we didn't have anything then, like we have now. But we did have United Press International audio. We, we took UPI audio, and although I couldn't read anything that was on the newswire, um, all of our actualities came from UPI audio. And I could go into the production studio, um, and even though I couldn't uh, read the, uh, uh, they would annotate all the cuts they sent us down the line. I, I couldn't read them, and they, they would always tell you uh, in the annotations who the quotes were from. Mm -hmm. But I was a news junkie in those days, and I could always identify who it was, because I'd, I'd heard him on probably on another newscast. Um, so I didn't. There were only maybe two times in those whole three years that I ever had uh, to go in the control room and say, guys, go out and, and rip the annotations and tell me who cut number 84 is. Right. But I could almost always identify, well, hell, they were people like Adolf Rupp, you know? Yes. And uh, yeah. uh, so that was not a problem. And, of course, uh, uh, since the stuff I was bringing on um, was audio, I could listen to the cuts, and it was easy to tell how to introduce the story. Right. And then, you know, to be perfectly honest, a lot of the time uh, before I'd come to work, I'd just give a good listen to WHAS news. And so then I knew what was going on. <laughs> and then, and then uh, when all else failed, we had a newspaper in Frankfurt called the State Journal. And the secretaries uh, of WFKY will we'll never forget the time we spent out in the lobby. They'd read me the stories from the paper and I'd write them down on the Perkins so we could steal the stories from the newspaper. Yeah. Yeah. They were your news agency. That was it. So, they, they knew it, too. They always razzed us. <laughs> yeah. So where did you go after, after Frankfurt? 
Well, uh, I was in Frankfurt until uh, 1970, and it, it was at that point that the uh, uh, WFPK and WFPL got a grant uh, to hire somebody to do uh, some announcing and some producing. And uh, so I was actually uh, given the opportunity to take that job, a full-time job in non-commercial radio. Was, so how did that interview thing. process go? When you walk in, obviously they can tell that you're blind. You're probably using a long cane. Uh, was, there, was that a problem? No, because I'd worked there before. In okay. fact, when, when they heard about the job, they came and offered it to me. Ah. My, the program director I had worked with uh, during the mid-'60s, um, I mean, this, this was a thrill to me. He came to Frankfurt to talk to me about it. He said, okay. we have a job I think you'd be interested in. And I, I mean, that, was a, that was an amazing thing. No, the hard interview was when I walked into WFKY and, and, and the big boss down there, Bob Dahl, who I later found out was close to legally blind, said to me, well, there's no way a blind man can do radio. And I found out the guy was blind himself. So sometimes those are the people who resist the notion the hardest. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. So how did you, I guess you convinced him uh, otherwise. Well, I basically just said, give me a chance to show you. He didn't want to do it. But as I say, in small towns, sometimes it's hard to fill those chairs. Sometimes you're just looking for a warm body. Mm -hmm. And there was a day, and I happened to be there at the right time, he was looking for a warm body, and I was warm. There you go. <laughs> so, so you ended up out in Seattle for a, a lot of your working career, right? Or the West Coast? Well, yeah, the West Coast. I, um, I went to Oregon. Uh, that was, the, in fact, I, I moved back here uh, from there. Um, but that was that's a not not for profit that runs Dialogue magazine. When I went to Dialogue in uh, 1972, when it was in Chicago, and I thought of it as packaged radio because it was a recorded magazine. Right. And I thought, boy, that'd be neat. You know, um, in a sense, what we're really doing is we're going to do an interviews, and we had the chance to edit them, which on in live radio you never had that chance. Mm -hmm. And um, so, in a way, that's that's what got me affiliated with dialogue was the notion that it was packaged radio. And, and, and when you say editing, was that something you actually did, or, or was that done by a technician? Or? Well, we can do it all now, um, but to do it then, you had to splice the tape. Or yeah, you that's had what to I was have, thinking. Or you had to have tape recorders that had really good breaks. Um, we had some Revox machines when I was at Dialogue that had really good breaks, and so we could do a, a, a lot of very close editing, and uh -huh. you couldn't really hear it. Uh, now, of course, uh, with the software uh, that you guys uh, at APH have developed with Studio Recorder and some right. other good software, the editing yeah. is it's a whole lot easier. Wish I had some of the tools now that we didn't have then. Yeah, yeah the, the difference between digital and analog is, is pretty pretty remarkable. Yeah. So, so how did you find the difference between live radio and, and as you say, packaged radio? Well, uh, when I was at WFKY, I usually did my newscast in the production studio, and I got to open my own mic. But there were times when that studio was tied up, and I'd have to be uh, in the big studio. And at that point, the guy would usually tap on the glass if he remembered uh, when he was going to open up my mic. Yeah. And you usually knew when your mic was closed because the speaker went back on. But I remember one famous day. I used to do the 5 o'clock news um, with the station's owner, Bob Dahl, and uh uh, Bob and I had much the same approach to news. We argued about practically everything else. <laughs> but um, Bob didn't always do his homework. And uh, uh, it was close to the election in 68, and we got a great big uh, actuality from UPS Audio. We hated to run over in the 5 o'clock news because it always threw them behind on their commercials. And there was a famous day we were in the studio, the big studio, and I didn't have control of the microphone. 
and Bob was in the production studio, and uh, he, he hadn't done his homework, and he, he was going to introduce a, a, a UPI actuality, and he didn't realize that it was seven minutes long. And I heard him introduce it, and I got real nervous. And, you know, sometimes you talk to yourself, and, you, and I'm saying, Bob, don't, don't, don't start this thing because it's seven minutes. Bob, don't start it. Oh, shit. <laughs> and then the speaker came back on. <laughs> And I thought, oh, crap, have I been alive only? And yeah, sure enough, about 10 people called me after the newscast, and all they said was, oh, shit, and hung up. So. <laughs> and, and you didn't have to worry about that in the package trading. Uh, no. Right, because you could edit all those things out. Um, so so um, what do you think, when you look back on your uh, the different jobs and career you've had in, in broadcasting, what, what's your highlight moment? What do you think is your favorite memory? Man, there's there's no question about it. Um, when I was at WFKY, we had to do everything. I got up early at 4.30 to do an early news shift, then I came back in at 3 o'clock in the afternoon to do the drive time news shift. And the talk show at 6 o'clock opened up, and they wanted me to take it. And I didn't want to do it because I'd been there all day. And they said they had a bribe. They said, well, I, I know you're a basketball fan, always have been, always will be. And, and they said, um, we, we want to get some UK guys on the talk show. If you'll do the talk show, we'll get you um, some some UK guys. We promise to get you some good guests from UK if you'll do the talk show. And I said, All right, all right, you 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 got me. They got me, Dan Issel and Mike Pratt, and that was um, that was my favorite uh, uh, hour that I ever spent in radio. Was talking to they, they'll never remember it, but I sure do. Talking to Mike Pratt and Dan Issel on that little program. Let's talk it over on WFKY. Yeah, yeah, that's great. That's great. Well, thank you very much, BT. Thanks, thank man. you. Page four. Um, so our next guest is uh, KSB alumni Michael McCarty. Uh, Michael is the one of folk, one 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 member of our panel that's actually interviewed me on the radio. That's true. That's yeah. true. Yeah. So, Mike, do you think you have a radio voice? No. Okay. I never have. In fact, my younger voice was worse than my current voice as far as having an accent and all that stuff, right. as my wife will tease me about. And has been teasing me about for the last month or so. And, and that's, a good, that's a good point because, I mean, in general, radio broadcasters try to have what they call, what, American Midwest. Right, you used like, to go to school for that yeah. to yeah. remove your accent. Right, yeah. So you, you actually uh, broadcast, uh, if I remember right, on the radio at KSB while you were right. a student. Is that mm -hmm. right? How did that come about? That came about, well, let's see, Rick Ricks was the person that basically got our station going, and he realized that, uh, you know, there was a lot of blind people, of course, that were in radio. He was also doing the, um, the work program at KSB, so he was trying to figure out another way to kind of expand the work program. And so he got together with a few people, and they built a very, very makeshift studio that consisted of a realistic mixer, but you could get at Radio Shack. You can still buy it on eBay. Uh, two realistic turntables and one realistic cassette deck. I mean, it was nothing professional at all. And um, the microphone that we used was one that they'd pulled out of the gym. It was one of those squeeze-trigger mics. Uh -huh. um, and so that was the first mic we used. And so they put that all together, and they worked with an engineer. I don't know where they found him, but uh, 
they uh, worked with an engineer and put an AM station on the air. When we first started, we had one watt. <laughs> one watt. So we would broadcast, you know, we would do well to leave. We were in the Gregory Reese Recreation Building. Right. Station was named after Gregory's wife, Edith. So you were the one watt tower of power. So we're the right? one watt tower of power. And we actually had a promo for that, too, being the tower of power. That's right. So, yeah. Uh, we, we, we talked earlier, Mike, and I was telling him about when I was uh, in undergraduate school at Kentucky Wesleyan, our radio station was broadcast through the pipes, the plumbing well, pipes. Well, UofL does, too. Yeah, yeah. So uh, if, if you moved your radio two feet away from the plumbing, you, you got no signal. So it must have been very that's, similar. That's kind of the way ours was, yeah. You could turn your radio a certain way, and it would come in, turn it another way, and we just would be totally gone. So what was the so. programming on, on that radio station? Well, because it was run by students, it, we pretty much gave, we broadcast for two hours a day, started at 7 and went to 9 p.m. when the, everybody else was doing recreation. So we gave each student an hour, and each student could play what they wanted to play as far as the format goes. So some of us would play country, some would play rock. Mm -hmm. Later on, they would get into rap and other stuff like that as that genre became popular. But, right. So, yeah, you pretty much played what you wanted to play. And, uh, of course, we would kind of, you know, listen to the shows and make sure that the, the DJs were being, you know, okay with what they were doing. Right. But uh, they pretty much play whatever they wanted to play. So the, the patter that goes on, you know, that, that, that disc jockeys do, is that part of the whole spiel, too? I mean, or was it pretty much just play one song after the other and, and read the titles? Well, each person was a little bit different. So, you know, some of them over the years developed personality and mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And then other people just... They play a record and they'd say the intro and. What about the young record. Michael McCarty? What was his style? Uh, well, the young Michael McCarty <laughs> style was awful. <laughs> really, it was awful. But um, <laughs> the way that I got into it was got into radio when Dad and I would drive home. I was a. Uh, I lived in Lebanon, Kentucky, so at that time we could drive back and forth, and I would go home on the weekends. So Dad would come up on Friday afternoon and pick me up. And we would ride home, and it about, I don't know, about an hour and 15-minute ride or so to get home, depending on the traffic and stuff. And we would listen to radio. Well, there was a guy on the radio at the time named Ed Phillips. And we would listen to him in the afternoon. He was on Country 11, WCII. And we listened to him every afternoon. And yeah, I thought that was, that was pretty cool. And I, sometimes he would do a Saturday afternoon shift, and I could hear him at home. And so that was pretty neat. And uh, when I started at KSB, I met Tom Scoggins, and, of course, Deanna taught me Braille, and through our conversations, they said, uh, hey, we know, did you know that Ed Phillips is blind? And I was like, no, I, I didn't know that. And then, of course, Tom Scoggins was into radio and stuff, too, and, you know, so between those two guys, I thought, you know, I might be able to do something like this someday mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. when I get a little bit older, and this might be something that I want to do. And so... I always remember listening to Ed in the car. And so when Rick came to me with this idea of doing a radio station, man, I was like all on that. Right. I mean, we were ready to do that. Yeah. And so that was awesome. So once you got out of school, uh, how did you get into into the radio uh, radio broadcasting outside of KSB? Well, of course, when I got out of KSB, I did I was station manager of our radio station there up until I graduated in 91. And, I mean, that's what I wanted to be when I grew up. I wanted to be a DJ. You know? right. <laughs> so I went to college at UofL for, to get a communication degree. And I was going to, I mean, that's what I was going to do. And I walked into WFPL one day to do a job interview. And they flat told me there was no way I was going to get a job there. No way. 
because I could not see to take the transmitter readings and okay. stuff. So, so describe I, what they're talking about there when you say take the transmitter. You have to do, well, it, you don't have to do it as much now because it's all digital and the computers do it and all that. But back then you had to do every hour, you had to take a, a, a reading of the meter to make sure that your transmitter wasn't broadcasting too strong, which might overpower some other radio station out mm -hmm. there somewhere, or that it wasn't weak and not getting out the way it was supposed to. So you right. had to monitor this thing every hour. Right. And so since I couldn't see to do that, that was an important job, apparently, of the disc jockey. I don't really believe uh, engineers usually do that. It's usually not the disc jockeys, necessarily. Right. Right. But I think that was a nice excuse to not hire me. Uh -huh. And I even worked with Office for the Blind, and they were going to come up with some ideas of technology that could do that, but they didn't, didn't want nothing to do with that. Okay. So that was kind of a bummer, especially since I was a student at UofL, and uh, you know, I thought I could get in. And that was, the, that was the university station. WUOL, yeah, I said mm -hmm. FPL, but WUOL mm -hmm. at the time. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, that was their station. So I thought, well, that's, that kind of stinks. So much for supporting your own, you know, students or whatever. Right. So that didn't work out too well. So I went on and, you know, continued my career in, in, at the university there. And I later, thanks to Ed Phillips again, who I had been talking to for years over the, uh, over the phone and stuff, I went to interview for WVEZ and uh, did a demo tape, took it in, and gave it to the program director, he listened to it, didn't hire me. Awful interview, horrible interview. Ed was disappointed, I was disappointed, absolutely awful. So after that, things in radio weren't looking as interesting. And of course, all this time's going on too that computers are starting to take over. Right. Radio in that time and, and is of today, computers pretty much run the radio stations. Mm -hmm. You know, a DJ now can run theoretically can run one, two, five, twenty stations. Yeah, there was a dramatic, dramatic change in between the time you were a, a kid and between the time you grew up. And right, because radio was more, actually was more accessible in the early days when you actually, when you literally put the needle on the record. Mm -hmm. uh, where now, there are no records, there are no CDs, everything is software driven, and most of the software that's out there that the broadcasters actually use is not accessible. And there are a lot fewer DJs. And a lot fewer DJs. Because, I mean, yes. you can program a station a from St. Louis, and then it can be broadcast on channel on, on stations all over the country. That's right, and that's pretty much how they do it. They'll get a big-time voice person in L.A. somewhere, and he'll, you know, do voiceovers for all kinds of stations all over. So you found yourself actually moving into Internet radio as well. Well, it, because we had done it at high, in high school, and, I mean, when we did it, it was... I mean, it was nuts and bolts. I mean, we, <laughs> the stuff we had was not professional. So, I mean, we had to make it up the whole way through. Mm -hmm. So I had a lot of experience with that. And then um, I just didn't want to give up the dream of being a DJ. So my wife and I got together with uh, a friend of ours, Matt Sorrell, and we decided that we would just do our own Internet radio station. We would have that dream. We won't get paid for it. Right. <laughs> so when was this, Mike? When this was, was this? let's see, we started that station in 2011, I think it was. 2011. <laughs> okay. okay. So, yeah, so we started that. And but I had been interviewed by, but with you and Carla on Sound Prince much earlier than that. Right, yep. Carla came to me. Uh, Jim Shaw wanted, was, uh, her and Jim Shaw did the show Sound Prince on WKJK, and it was a talk show. And... Uh, I don't know what the, what the circumstance was, but Jim Shaw felt that I might be a little bit better at it or whatever, so he gave me that opportunity to get in there and do that. So mm -hmm. Carla and I did it for several years, and uh, 
I don't know, talk radio was different. You know, I wanted to be a DJ, not a talk radio host. Right. And so there was a whole new world of doing talk radio. It takes a long time to fill up an hour when you're talking. Yeah. You know, when you play a three or four minute song, it, it kind of cuts into a lot of the time. <laughs> but boy, that talking over the air for an hour, man, that, that can go for an eternity. <laughs> so, Mike, let me ask you a question quickly about that. So, in your mind, when you were a kid, did you think of the DJ as kind of, he was like the rock star of the radio station? Yeah, because, I mean, well, my grandmother had this idea that I was going to be the next Ronnie Millsap. Uh, I learned very early that was not going to happen because uh, I cannot sing. So, that, that was not going to happen. So, but I love to play records. I love to sit and play with my record players and right. stuff when I was a kid. Right. So I found out, hey, man, I can, if I can play records and get paid for it, that's pretty cool. <laughs> so that's kind of what interested me in doing that. So the interview Should process of interviewing, uh, um, why was that more difficult? The interview process for? For when you were on Sound Prince and you are doing interviews. Oh, interviews. Well, I mean, it's just, you've got to do a lot of... Um, I don't know, like with music, you know, you've already got a lot of the information. You know who recorded the song, mm -hmm. you know the title of the song, you, you know what year it came out. So you've already got stuff to talk about about that song if you, got, if you need to take the time to do that. A lot of times you don't. You just, you know, fancily say the artist's name and the song title and move on, play the song, and there you go. Right. But when you're interviewing somebody, you don't know what they're going to say. So did you ever have an interview go, go south on you? Not too bad on sound prints. No? No, not, not too bad. If the interview went south, it's usually because I said something that I, <laughs> that I shouldn't have said or whatever. <laughs> it usually wasn't the interviewer, uh, interviewee that got it. It was usually me. So. Okay, okay. So um, what are you doing now in radio? Are you do you still have a, uh, the online show? We the still do our online show. Okay. And that, too, you know, doing Internet radio, again, you're not just doing the on-air stuff, you're doing, I mean, we're like a two-person radio station, so we do all the production work, we do all the, you know, everything that a station that would normally have 20, 30 people doing, right. two of us are doing it. So a normal, I mean, I guess a typical broadcast radio station, there's all these companies out there that are doing all these analytics, and they'll tell them how many listeners they have, oh, yeah. and how their ratings go. How do you know how you're doing when you're doing internet radio? Well, our software tells us how many connections we have. Uh -huh. Okay. So that doesn't necessarily tell us how many listeners we have, but at least it tells us how many connections we've got. Mm -hmm. You know, if we're all sitting in here in a room, this would be one connection, but obviously there's a bunch of us here. Right. So you kind of get an idea of who's listening and all that sort of stuff by the connection that you can get out of your software. And is the equipment, um, is it pretty much standard stuff, or do you have to, is there anything special you have to... Well, you can set it up a lot of different ways. We're a little old school. We still use turntables and tape decks and stuff like that, and CD players. Mm -hmm. But then we also use a computer to play the music, too. Some people only use the computer. CD so. player? What's a CD player? <laughs> That's that little thing with those discs that we're never supposed to skip. That skip all the time. So, so. What, is your, what is your favorite, when you look back on all you've done in radio, what's your favorite moment or your favorite memory or your highlight moment? I don't know. I think we're still making those. Uh -huh. I, don't, I don't know that I have one particular one. I think probably my my favorite memory of radio in general was doing when we used to go in overnights with Ed Phillips when he worked on WVEZ. And he was showing me the board and, you know, Ed, of course, being totally blind himself, he knew how to show me the board. So he's letting me feel the buttons and the controls and, mm -hmm. you know, check out the mics and all this stuff. So I'm doing all this, and he, he says, um, I need to go out and take a smoke break. I said, okay. 
So he said, I'm going to put on this song. It's about, I don't know, he, he had a couple songs that were like six, seven minutes long, so he knew he could go downstairs, take a smoke break, come back up. Um, yeah, or uh, the Eagles Hotel California. Right. The live version is like, yeah. I don't know, eight minutes or something. Yeah. yeah. So he could run down and do that and come back. So he's about halfway through the Eagles Hotel California live song, and he announces he's going to go down and you know, take a smoke break. And I'm like, well, Ed, you only got about 30 minutes. He said, yeah, I know. I said, well, who's going to start the next track? He said, you are. And uh, so he just walks out. And I'm like, well, I don't know how, you know, when do I push the button? He said, well, how do you know any other time to push the button? He said, you know what to do. And so he just walks out. And so I'm sitting there, you know, having to do this, waiting for the song to fade and doing all that <laughs> stuff, you know, to do the smooth transition between one song and another. Right. But I'm like, this is for real, you know. I'm yes. on actual radio doing this, and it's his career. Yes. It's his job. Yeah. If I screw this up, he could lose his job. And so, but I, I pushed the button and everything was okay. But that's just, the, I mean, for one, that's just the kind of person that Ed was. Uh -huh. He would just give you that opportunity. If he believed in you, he would just give you that opportunity and let you do it. Yeah. And, uh, but he sure made a nervous wreck out of me that night. <laughs> I never forgot that either. Never forgave him for it either. <laughs> that's great. Uh, thank you, Michael. Let's yes, indeed. Hand. There you go. Page five. So our, our final panelists is actually we have a pair of, of, of folks. We've got Alex Stein and Mason Tilly, and, and the, the radio station at KSP has just gone back, back. Um, I guess, what would, how would you say it, Alex? What, what is, is it, is it, it's gone live again, right? It has gone live. Yeah. So how did it happen that you guys got the radio station back on going at, at KSP? All right. This is one of my first times holding a microphone, so it's, this is going to be interesting, Tom. So we had a small investment from AT&T, which helped out, and the charitable foundation pitched in, and eventually, with many, many, many weeks, all the equipment was purchased. It got there, got set up, and now we are streaming on the Internet. So what kind of equipment did you have to buy, Alex? Oh, we have all kinds of mixer boards, headsets, microphones, and a really powerful desktop computer. And and where's the where's the where is the equipment installed at at the school? It is now in the Evans Hall dorm. And what's what's your role, Alex, on the on the station? I was definitely the one that helped set up some. I I like to get on the air and talk a little bit. Uh huh. So you're both an engineer and and uh, and an online personality, I guess you could say. I am. So what kind of a show do you do you do? Oh, well, it started off as our big technology show. We would get on and talk about all kinds of technology-related subjects. Mm -hmm. But it's kind of expanded into all kinds of other subjects, such as what people like to do during the summer. Some of our experiences we've done outside of KSB. Uh -huh. how, how many hours a day is the, is the station online? It is usually online 24 hours a day. Really? So what's going on at 4 a.m.? If I tune into it, what's happening? What am I listening to? Well, we'd hope there'd be some music playing, but okay. sometimes that's not always the case. So where does that, I mean, where does that music come from? It's, I mean, it sounds like a robot, right? I mean, it's basically just all something you picked out and then it, the computer puts it all on? It's a continuous automation. Okay. 
Okay. So you've got your uh, cohort in crime there with you, Mason Tilly. So, Mason, what do you do on the radio station? Well, uh... <laughs> I hope that's the voice you use. Yeah, <laughs> it is the voice I use. Uh, and on this radio station, uh, I kind of got into radio because I was at short-term KSB one day, and then, um, well, there was this one teacher who kind of helped us out a lot and setting up that radio station. He just come up to me, and he's like, well, we need a lot of help setting this up because we bought all this equipment, and we got no idea how to configure it. So they had, like, 16 microphones and didn't know how to plug them into the board. So I come down to the radio station there, I set up their mixer, I set up their mics, and I plugged them all into the computer. Mm -hmm. I got the board running through the computer so we could broadcast live from the station. But actually, most of our broadcasts are not done in the radio station because we live so daggone far apart that we just do them over the Internet remotely, actually. So we are actually sitting at our homes, and we are broadcasting to, we are sending audio to the station computer from our homes, which then broadcasts it live out onto the internet. So, like you're you're broadcasting live from your bedroom. Yes. And and and, you know, I, you know, we work at the printing house, so we we record talking books, and we have literally soundproof booths inside of soundproof booths sometimes. And you're broadcasting out of your bedroom. Yes, but you have to understand how much money we put into this radio station. I have a great microphone. It's like such. Of, it's like so great it condenses everything if uh -huh. you're not three feet in front of that microphone you can't hear anything yeah so it's well worth the investment to not hear my family screaming in the background <laughs> so it's so it's all it's all about the equipment then really yes. yeah and um my, i guess my role on the radio station i'd say is just the kind of i'm i'm the main guy that talks on the show and you can actually uh we have a website up where you can go listen to our uh past shows it's called ksbyearbook.com and you can go on there and you can look at all of our shows that we've done and uh we, we do them actually every wednesday night nine to ten but i guess my main role on there would be i'm the guy who talks while alex does all the technical engineering stuff behind there while he gets all the music ready and i talk and make it look like we're actually doing a show so the first time that you actually had to be on live on the radio, what, what was going through your mind? Well, the first time uh, that I had to be online during the radio was, well, how, this is how I got online during the radio. I was at a track meet all the way in Walton, Verona. I was driving home, cause, and I just ran a great race, and I won. So I, got, I was on the interstate. 71 and Alex texts me he's like well we're going to be on the air in about 30 minutes <laughs> so I had to get home really quick I had to just, like run up to my room log on to the computer plug in my microphone and get all on there all in time for a hour-long radio show that actually was the most successful show we ever did was our mm -hmm. first show that's the most listeners we ever had and we never had as many listeners ever again <laughs> 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 so, what was going through my mind was, oh, were you my, nervous? A little bit. I was like, "What the heck am I supposed to talk about?" Yeah. But luckily, since our it was our first show, we got a lot of listeners. So uh, we had people that knew us were listening, and they would randomly text us things they wanted us to talk about. And now, of course, we have a more um, integrated, you know, communication system with us on our website that they can go and actually submit topics and email them to us. Yeah. But no one ever uses it, so I don't know why it's there. But yeah. in case anyone would ever like to submit a topic for us to talk about, <laughs> please do so. 
That's great, Mason. Hand it back to Alex. I've got one more question for him. So, so Alex, that 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 challenge that Mason talks about of of uh, figuring out what to say. Are are you all reading scripts um, when you're doing your broadcasting in general, or are you you know generally making it up as you go along? Oh well, we first we started this show around the fact that it is extremely random, and that has not changed a bit. Okay. So do you ever do you ever get tongue tied? Oh yeah, sometimes it's so bad we just go and play a song. <laughs> <laughs> so live radio, I mean, it's it, I mean, is it is it live as opposed to being like taped, like uh, a BT was talking about about the program shows he did, or or you do you tape your shows and then and then broadcast them? It is very live. Okay, so there's a lot of lessons to be learned there about you know what not to blurt out in a in a moment of fear and panic, right? <laughs> Yes. So what do you want to do, Mason? What do you think you want to do um, going forward with radio? Well, uh, I hadn't really planned on making a professional career out of it or mm -hmm. anything, but it is definitely a plan B. Yeah. But um, going forward with radio, I do plan to, because uh, Alex is actually graduating in about a year, so I don't know what the heck we're going to do when he does that, because then we'll just have me and he'll be on to college and we won't have time for this radio station. So... I'm going to stay on this radio station as long as I can, get as much experience out of it as I can. Great. Thank you guys very much. You're if you have questions about the Kentucky Council of the Blind or you need information on resources for people with vision loss, call us at 502-895-4598 or email us at kcb at kentucky-acb.org. Sound Prince is a production of the Kentucky Council of the Blind and is heard each week on ACB Radio Mainstream at acbradio.org, Central Kentucky Radio I at radioi.org, and the KCB website at www.kentucky-acb.org. Complete schedule information is also available on the website. Sound Prince is underwritten by the Louisville Downtown Lions Club, and by the American Printing House for the Blind. This is Carla Rushable for Soundprints. Have a great week, everybody.